Good evening. Welcome to our Wednesday night service. Um, tonight, tonight is kind of a. Uh, actually, let me do. Let me say one thing before we start. Um, I'm going to ask our uh, couple of our ushers to come. We've got kind of a weird setup, and I'll address that here in a second. So I'm going to ask our ushers to come by the tables to pass the offering plates. Timberline family, we do this. This is a value we hold to that, that we, we give back the first of what God has given us, both as a symbol that, that it's all his and um, also as a way to really expand this kingdom dream that, that God has. And so thank you, Timberline family, for the ways in which you've been faithful. If you're a guest, it would, like we always say, we don't ask you to give, but just be, be our guest. Um, tonight, when you walked in the room, this is kind of like a test in personality theory. Okay, if when you walked into this room, you had this like deep anticipation of gratification, you thought, oh, boy, I get to sit around tables and I get to talk to people and my normal exuberant self gets to come out. and I get to have conversation. You have a little personality trait, something we call extroversion. Okay, now, if when you walked into this room, you immediately you, you actually didn't walk into the room yet. You stopped like before you got into the room. And this sense of panic came over you. And, and this deep concern that, that you're going to be sitting around a table with people you do not know and have, probably have to have a conversation which will drain you. And so when you leave, you will be, have less energy than when you walked in. It's pretty safe to assume you have, you have a little personality trait called introversion. But um, you're not gonna, I, I, I'm going to disappoint the extroverts and um, please the introverts. You're, you don't have to say a word. To anyone around you, we're not we're not doing anything. This is not intentional. <laughs> um, this morning we we had a big event going on in here where where they needed tables, and then tomorrow evening they have another big event where where they needed tables. And so Karen Bauer came and said, "Do you think like the Wednesday night crowd would be okay if they had tables?" And I said, "I half of them, if that makes up all, will be thrilled, and the other half will might not even come in." So there are some people who probably were going to be here tonight and are driving right now. They're driving back home because they're the extreme introvert. So anyway, that's, that's sort of just a little explanation of the setup here for tonight. But we're starting a new series on our Wednesday nights. Um, we have four weeks left, and then we take a break for summer. So it's hard to believe that this semester has gone so fast. We kind of follow the school semester and all our kids' youth programming and adult programming. During the uh, summer months, kind of takes a little bit of a break, and we pick back up in September. So four more weeks. Um, and we just finished Easter. Um, you think about the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. About a quarter of those Gospels, about 25%, think about this now, is dedicated to, not of all Jesus' about 33 years in his uh, ministry here, about the last week of his life, and then a little bit toward the resurrection. Now, why do you suppose that is? Like, think about that. The authors dedicate 25% of their whole Gospels just to really the last week of Jesus' life, as well as a little bit after the resurrection. Why do you suppose that is? What does that reflect upon what they thought was important? Yeah. They, they thought, this is kind of important. You should probably know about this. Things are kind of leading up to that, Okay. What we're doing is we're spending the next four weeks looking at the portion of the Bible that makes up about 77% of the Bible. That's like over three quarters. What do you say? You suppose there's any correlation to like how important do you think that is? I think it's probably pretty important. And see, one of the challenges for us, I think, as New Testament followers of Jesus, people in the New Covenant or the New Testament is to say, you know, there was this old covenant. And, and like, man, what, is that, what does that mean? What does that mean to my life as an apprentice of Jesus, as, as one who attempts to, to follow Christ, to, to uh, enter his kingdom, and, and to live as a follower of Jesus in my relationships now? Like, what, what relevance is there for me from, from the Old Testament? And the reason we're spending four weeks on it, only four weeks, I wish we could do more, is we think there's actually a huge relevance to our lives. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the next four weeks. And obviously, it's just a cursory look. It's only four weeks. But we're going to ask that some of those big questions. What is the relevance? You know, is, is the God of the Old Testament really the same as the God of the New Testament? Because, man, it, it, 
it seems like there's some sharp differences in many ways. How, how do we make sense of it? And so this evening, I asked a good friend of mine. He, he won't be a, a stranger to many of you. Jim's been with us before, and, and Jim, um, I'll ask him to come on up right now. Jim Lindsay, is, um, he's a, a timberliner. He's a, he's a good friend. He's a professor at um, CSU in the area of Middle East history studies, and he's been with us before. Jim teaches some of our adult education Sunday morning classes. And I asked Jim if he would just come and, and kind of set the stage for these next four weeks of looking at, okay, how do we get our minds around the Old Testament? Like, what's it all about? How do we make sense of it? Because it can be a little overwhelming. So um, I've asked Jim to do that. You need, I'm not staying up here the whole time okay. if that's what you want. But. And I did. Can I put up on the screen? We've got two uh, kind of book suggestions. If, if this is something that you'd say, yeah, you know, I really want to study this further. I want to dig further. Two really good books, and they're up here if you want to come take a look at them afterwards. One is Making Sense of the Old Testament. Can you believe they stole our title for this series? Kind of made me mad. Um, three, three crucial questions. And, and he does a great job walking through three key elements. We'll talk about some of those in this series. And then the other is Victor Matthews, um, Old Testament Turning Points. And Jim, you, you did a book club I did. on Turning Points. In yes. the Old Testament, right? It was a rousing success. <laughs> it was thrilling. <laughs> it was thrilling. So, would you please welcome Dr. Jim Lindsay for us tonight? Thank you, Brent. I have uh, one week or one one session to try to condense what I do in two 15-week courses at CSU, and even there, it's very superficial. So, um, by the time we're done, you will think. That's too much information, but that's the way it goes. That's what my students tell me all the time. When Brent asked me to address making sense of the Old Testament, or how can, we, how can I help people understand the Old Testament, as a historian, I think one of the most important things is to try to understand and try to situate ourselves into a world that we no longer live in. And I'm not, I'm not talking about pre-Easter, post-Easter. I'm talking about a world that, you know, just in a very simple way, has books. This is called, this is called a codex. It's a fancy word for a book. And we have writing on two sides of a piece of paper. It's bound. And hence it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. That's an invention of, that's not even 2,000 years old. Okay, this is an invention from after the time of Jesus. So when we have a Bible, we know that the Bible has a beginning, and it has a middle and an end. And we, when you're a little kid, you learn the books of the Bible in their order. Well, who came up with that order? Why is that order that way? Why do we order it this way? Why do the Jews order it a different way? We order it this way because we borrowed the model of the Greek translation of the Bible that was made in Egypt about 200 years before Jesus. The Jewish tradition uses the Hebrew text. They use use a different model, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second. So that's just one thing. Another is that you can read these books. Literacy in the time period of the Old Testament, the time period of ancient Israel, was not widespread at all. In fact, if you were a writer, if you could actually write, you were like a magician. You had magical powers. Some of you may have read parts of the Old Testament and found it bizarre. There's a, there's a test for an unfaithful wife where you write something on a potsherd and you wash it off into water and you make your wife drink it. And if she gets ill then you know she's cheating on you. And then, of course, you kill her. Okay, we don't do that anymore. All right? Now, why in the world would they have that? Why would you have to drink that water? If you look at when that practice existed, think of it as, this is like an ancient Near Eastern voodoo doll. The ancient Egyptians used to have these texts, that they called them execration texts. They would write a person's name on it and smash it, and that would, their name was now broken. That person is going to 
hopefully something bad will happen to them. We don't think in those terms. We write on everything. We have paper all over the place. And we have books. So that's one way that we are quite different. Another way is that in the ancient Near East, you do not have the assumption that there is one God who is the creator of the universe. That's our operating assumption. We are Christians. If we look at one of the major themes that we find throughout the Old Testament is that the Old Testament is making a case for one God, the creator of all that exists, in a world in which there are many gods, and where the moon is a god, the sun is a god, the waters are gods. There is a god of peaceful waters, a god of chaotic waters. One of the things that we see in Genesis 1 is that the sun and the moon and the stars are there to illuminate the creation. They are put there by the creator. In fact, there's not even a word for nature in the Old Testament. There's creation, there's creator. There's a very big difference there. I remember when I was a little kid, this was kind of pounded into me, and whenever I heard somebody refer to Mother Nature, I always thought that this, must, this is a form of idolatry. You know, I kind of got that uh, pounded in. Uh, I don't think in those terms, but if I hear it, I still get the little creepies. So, uh, my parents trained me. They trained me. Maybe they trained me well, maybe they didn't train me well, but they trained me. Can I have uh, these slides up here? So the question that we want to ask is, what is the scripture in the week after Easter? Easter was on Sunday. We celebrated it on Sunday. In the olden days, they would have celebrated it to coincide with Passover. In the early 300s, at the Council of Nicaea in 325, a decision was made to change the date of the celebration of the resurrection of our Lord so that people would not celebrate it with too many Jewish practices. This was not a... Jews, they were trying to get people to stop being Jewish and to stop following Jewish practices, so we changed the date. And now it's really complicated. That's why I never know when Easter is. And this year it almost coincided with Passover. Passover started... Uh, last Monday. But this is a very famous passage that we learn in Sunday school uh, from 2 Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. And I learned this verse, and the emphasis was all Scripture is inspired by God. What I never learned until I was well into adulthood is what is Scripture? What Scripture is, is, is being talked about here? What we have as the New Testament is being written at this time. In the week right after, in the days right after Jesus' resurrection, there is new te- no New Testament. There is no word of God that is a, a new revelation from God that is written down. He's standing right in front of me, if I am Thomas or one of the disciples. This is the revelation of God. This is the word of God. This is the word of God made flesh dwelling among us. Those of you who... Uh, grew up in a Catholic church or an Orthodox church or a Lang- uh, Episcopal church, your Bible is more than 77% Old Testament because you have the Deuterocanonical books. This is the prologue to one of the Deuteron- Deuterocanonical books. Uh, you can put, the, put that up there. They don't need to look at me on the screen. Uh, this is from the prologue of a text which is called The Wisdom of Sirach. This is written in about 180 B.C. And I love this. I use this in my classes at CSU. In the prologue, this is what he has to say. Many great teachings have been given to us through the law and the prophets and the others that followed them. And for these, we should praise Israel for instruction and wisdom. 
Now those who read the Scriptures must not only themselves understand them, but must also, as lovers of learning, be able through the spoken and written word to help the outsiders. So my grandfather, Jesus, ben, son of Sirach, Jesus is a Greek version of the, the name Joshua. Okay, so it was Joshua, son of Sirach, who had devoted himself especially to the reading of the law and the prophets and the other books of our ancestors and had acquired considerable proficiency in them, was himself also led to write something pertaining to instruction and wisdom, so that by becoming familiar also with his book, those who love learning might make even greater progress in living according to the law. And you notice I put in, I underlined law, prophets, others, and after law I put the word Torah. Torah is simply a Hebrew word that means instruction. This text is written in Greek. And in Greek, they translated the word Torah, which means instruction, as nomos, which means, which we use for our word law. Okay? Now, for us, when we think of law, it's, it, it, we think of it in one way. When we think of instruction, it's much broader. And I think that's one of the things that we need to bear in mind when we're reading the Old Testament, that it's not just law, but it is intended as instruction. As it says up here, instruction, wisdom, learning. Same thing that Paul wrote in Timothy. For teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. He doesn't have the Gospels that they're reading on Sunday morning. They're reading from the Torah or the prophets or the other writings. Sirach says another wonderful thing as his prologue continues. You are invited, therefore, to read my book, which is a translation of my grandfather's book, uh, with goodwill and attention and to be indulgent in cases where, despite our diligent labor in translating, we may seem to have rendered some phrases imperfectly. For what was originally expressed in Hebrew does not have exactly the same sense when translated into another language. Thank you, Mr. Sirach. You're saying exactly what, I'm just, what I just said. Okay? Not only this book, but even in the law, okay, he's writing nomos. He's translating the word Torah. The prophecies and the rest of the books differ not a little when read in the original. And we, now, just because it's a translation doesn't mean that you can't know, but it is you know, one of the things that we always need to be mindful of. After Easter, Jesus appeared to his disciples. And in Luke's gospel, he records this scene. They're walking on the road to Emmaus. And the disciples don't know who's this guy with them. And then Jesus makes himself, you know, they, they realize who he is and they are, they're scared out of their mind. What happened here? And what his first response to them is, peace be to you, or, you know, chill, it's okay. And what does he say to them? He says, Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So why am I spending all this time telling you what was the Bible or what were the scriptures in the weeks after Easter? The reason for that is that this is the organization, the way that the books of the Bible are organized in the Jewish tradition. This would be the Bible that would have been used in the early church. Again, they did not have the New Testament. Many of them were eyewitnesses to the revelation, the point that I already made. In Hebrew, they refer, Jews referred to the Bible as the Tanakh which Hebrew is an interesting language. Most words are made from three letters. And what they do is they take the first letter of the group of books, which is called the Torah, and the first letter of a group of books, which is called the Prophets, and the first letter of the book, group of books, which is called the Writings, when you have with a T and an N and a K, and then you just throw some vowels in there and you get the word Tanakh. We don't do that in English because we pronounce the letters. We say F-B-I-C-I-A-C-S-U. Okay? If we were in Hebrew, I would work at Kasu. 
right? Or I don't know. You know, we, this, this is, uh, is, that's just why it's called the Tanakh. What's it, what the point that I want to make here, and the, the, it's the exact same books, they're just in a different order. But we have the Torah over here, the five books of Moses. We call it the Pentateuch because it's a Greek word meaning five books. Jews call it the Torah, the instruction. They also call it the Chumash, which means the five books. Okay? So it's just a Hebrew word for five. The prophets are divided into two categories, the former prophets and the latter prophets. The former prophets are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. In the Christian tradition, we don't really think of these as prophetic books. We tend to think of these as historical books. But it's in these books that you have Samuel, you have Joshua, you have an awful lot of prophetic characters, right? When we get to the latter prophets, they divide it into two categories, which we use as well. The major prophets, not because they're important, but because they're big, they're long. And the minor prophets, or the book of the twelve, excuse me, the scroll of the twelve. Because they're so short, you could write all of them on one scroll. All right? And then we have the miscellaneous writings, the sacred writings. Notice that the first book of the sacred writings is the Psalms. Jesus says the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So by referring to the Psalms, he's referring to the, that whole category of literature. This I already pointed out to you. Um, Here's an example of the word Torah that many of us probably are not aware of. This is a famous passage that mothers like to tell their children. My son, heed the discipline of your father. Dad's going to come home, and I'm going to tell him. Okay? And do not forsake the instruction of your mother. Do not forsake the Torah of your mother. Okay, so Torah is not necessarily a highfalutin term. Okay? I mean, it has a, it has a, a basic term. But it also has, there's a distinction when we're talking about the Torah of the Lord. Each of these subsections of the Bible begins with a passage which invokes the importance of Torah. And I cannot overemphasize this when we're trying to understand the totality of the Old Testament. When it is organized and when it is read and when it was read uh, in the Jewish tradition and still is read in the Jewish tradition and in our tradition, Torah is central. The beginning of the book of Joshua, the first of the major prophets. Here we have this words of encouragement to Joshua. Be strong and courageous, for you shall put this people in possession of the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Only be strong and courageous, being careful to act in accordance with all the teaching that my servant Moses commanded you. All of the Torah that Moses gave you. Right? Do not turn from the right hand or to the left so that you may be successful wherever you go. This book of the teaching shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to act in accordance with all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way with all that is... Excuse me. Then you shall, you shall make your way prosperous and then you shall be successful... I hereby command you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, we've all read, most of us have read that passage before. But once you've realized that it's, it's the beginning of the next section of the, of the Bible, and it's emphasizing not the law of the Lord, I mean, it, which is part of it, but it's the instruction of the God who appeared to Moses at the burning bush and told Moses what his name is. Okay, my name is Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. This is the name you're to tell the Israelites who, has, who, who is the one who has sent you. So this is the scroll of the teaching. The book of Isaiah, the first of the major prophets, it very early on in that book, it also talks about the importance of Torah. Here he's talking about a time in the future. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house, that's Jerusalem, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations, all the Gentiles, all the goyim, all the foreigners, that's what that word means. There are Israelites and there is everybody else. There's us and there's them. 
The them shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us in his ways. There's that word Torah again. And that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth Torah and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Here's a surprise. In the Christian tradition, we have looked to this passage as a prophetic foretelling of what we just celebrated. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Because we are the Gentiles. We are the foreigners. We are the ones who are now, in a po- it's now possible for us to be grafted into the covenant uh, that was made with Abraham. The beginning of the first of all of the Psalms is also an invocation and a, uh, of, of Torah. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the Torah of the Lord. And on his Torah he meditates day and night. Wasn't Joshua commanded to meditate on the Torah that he was taught by Moses day and night? See the parallels? See the recurring themes over and over and over again? He is like a tree deeply rooted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. It's not not a tree that we see on the news when we have one of our windstorms and these giant trees are knocked over and the root system looks rather small. It's a root system that goes down way deep because they have meditated day and night on the instruction of the Lord, that the winds and the cares of life cannot knock them over. Those of you who know Matthew's Gospel, and I'll come to this in a minute, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say? He says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are, blessed are. Hold that thought, because I'm, I'm, I'm going to make the, I will assert, I will make the case that when Jesus is giving his Sermon on the Mount, that's his first teaching. He is giving his commentary on Torah. And when that audience heard him begin his sermon, blessed are, they know Psalm 1. And they know, they're, they're making these connections. Okay? Now, this is, uh, all of these things are in your, the handout they gave you. Another way that, thing that is very important for us to understand the Old Testament is that it's a, it's a big story. It has a beginning, and it has a lot of chapters, and it has an end. And the way that the books are ordered in the Jewish tradition, it, it flows a little bit better than in ours. It's not interrupted in the middle with Psalms, Proverbs, Job, uh, Esther and stuff, and then we get to the prophets. So, I mean, you can kind of, you have a more of a continuous narrative flow there. The first 11 chapters of Genesis begin with a universal history. You know, why are we here? How did we get here? Why are men and women the way that they are? We learn at the end of the first chapter of Genesis that God created the human, male and female created he them. Okay? Chapters 2 and 3, we learn that there is this human, but he needs some help. So God parades all the animals in front of him, or in front of it, and none of them are satisfactory. I'm thankful for that. Uh, That's why we're not engaging in bestiality, right? And what does he do? He puts the human to sleep, and it's from his rib or from his side that we get his helper. And he sees her and he and you know, calls her woman because he said, whoa, man. Uh, there we go. All right, no. But what, what do we find in the very next verse? It's for this reason that a man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. That's the very next sentence after she is made. There's a wonderful rabbinic commentary, ancient rabbinic commentary, that tries to bring these two stories together. If the human was made male and female at the end of chapter 1, why do we have to make Eve in chapter 2? 
It's because when the human was made first, it was, you know, hermaphroditic. Okay, it was male and female facing different, you know, in different directions. And so what's going on in chapter 2 is that he is separating them, that human being, into two parts. And that's why, right away, they're trying to get back together. This is another reason why parents are trying to keep them apart until a later time uh, in their children's lives. Right? Now, why is this important? These, what we find in these first chapters are ex- explanations for why there is good, why there is bad, why there is work, why, there is, why we don't live in a garden anymore, and also why the inclination of the human is towards bad. Okay, this is what we learn when they're expelled from the garden. Things get really bad, so what does God do? He's going to wipe it all out. He's going to hire Russell Crowe, and he's going to call him Noah, and he's going to wipe him out. Not because, I mean, I haven't seen the movie, but um, why? Because there is evil and violence, and the assumption is that there's an awful lot of murder going on. And so he's going to start all over. He's going to wash the world again. And he's going to start over with a watery abyss, just like we see in the very first verse of Genesis chapter 1. And where is, what does he tell Noah to do? He tells him to build a boat. He doesn't tell him to build Estes Ark on 34, which has a nice prow and a bow, and, and it looks very navigable. No, he gives him dimensions that are essentially a giant shoebox. Okay? Big rectangular box. There is no sail. There is no rudder. There is no steering. There is no possible way for Noah to direct that vessel. Noah is the second Adam. He's starting over all from scratch. And the only thing that preserves Noah is because he is in that box and God has shut the door and he is protected. I wrote the Hebrew word here, teva. That's the word that, is used, that we translate as ark. It's not, the, the word for the ark of the covenant is a completely different word. They have no relation to one another. That word is used only one other time in the whole Bible. That is the word that is used to describe the little basket that baby Charlton Heston is put into, right? For Moses. What do we have in, Mo, in the Moses story? Moses is put in a teva, the deliverer, the redeemer, the means of the salvation of the people of God is placed into the dangerous waters of the Nile that is full of crocodiles and there is nothing that can direct that little teva. Okay, there is no steerage, there's no string attached to it, there's no remote control boats out in, you know, there's nothing like that. Completely dependent on whom? On God. So once again, God is delivering his people. First, all of humanity. Now he's delivering the people of Israel through this means. And it's, it's, I think it's very important that this is the only time that this word is ever used. Describing the, the vessel for Noah, in which humanity is preserved. The vessel for Moses, in which the people of Israel are preserved. The story goes, I don't have time to give you all the story, but we have the family history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph in the book of Genesis. They go down into Genesis as a family. They come out as a nation. They come out in abundant numbers. And they're going to spend 40 years in the desert. I wrote up here on the screen, covenant and kinship. The two things are inseparable. And we, you have to understand covenant and you have to understand kinship to understand the world of the Old Testament. The begats and the begats and the begats matter. It matters who is related to whom. It matters that Abraham, while he is given that blessing in Genesis chapter 12, the first few verses, that blessing is going to be clarified Many years hence, that it must, it only is going to go through, in its particular form, through one son, through Isaac. And then it's not through Jacob and Esau, but it's only through Jacob. And it matters who is related to whom. After Sarah dies, 
Okay, Ishmael has been sent away. Isaac is home. He takes his, you know, he, he's going to get a wife and he's going to take her to his mother's tent and he's going to make her his wife. Uh, one of my colleagues at CSU, uh, when she got married, they, in Colorado you don't have any real rules for a, a marriage. And they, she and her fiancé, they went up to the mountains and they had a tent and they just did their own little ceremony. And, and this, you can do this in Colorado. So when she told me that, I says, oh, Ruth, you had a biblical wedding. Just, this is just like Jacob. Okay? I mean, excuse me, this is just like Isaac had in his wedding. You went to the tent and there you were. So the point that I want to make here is that after Sarah dies, Abraham takes a number of wives, has a number of other sons. One of those sons is Midian. When we get to the Joseph story, Joseph is going to be sold by his brothers to Ishmaelites and Midianites, distant relatives, and that's how he's going to get into Egypt. Everybody is related. and It's a family story. When they come out, it's, it's a national story, and that national story is going to continue. That, and when we get to the time period of King David, it becomes a political story. And David is going to be given another covenant, that authority, kingship in, the, in ancient Israel is always going to reside in his family. And that's important for our story. There's a reason why the very first verse of the New Testament makes mention of the genealogy of Jesus, the account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it ends with Abraham. Matthew is writing his gospel to a very literate Jewish audience. When Luke gives his genealogy, he takes it all the way back to Adam. He's writing to a Gentile audience. Going back to the, what is it that all of humanity have in common? Adam. But if he's going to be the Messiah, he has to come from the line of David and Abraham. Let me move on. The last major point I want to emphasize, and this is something that gets to one of the questions that was on the front of your bulletin, is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New Testament? In the 200s, of our calendar, there was a guy named Marcion, and he made the argument that the God of, of the New Testament was a different God. He was a God of love. The God of the Old Testament was a God of judgment and anger and maliciousness. And he made the argument that we need to get rid of all that stuff, and we need to focus on Jesus and Jesus only. He was expelled as a heretic. Okay? The heresy of Marcion has not died. I, go, I have this conversation with students over and over and over again. The New Testament is a God of love. The Old Testament is a God of judgment. Jesus talks about hellfire an awful lot. You don't find anybody in the Old Testament talking about hellfire. There's no hellfire in brimstone. That's a New Testament concept. Okay, so I, I think we need to just keep that in mind. This is the great commandment. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you walk on the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your, the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. Moses is giving his final sermon before he dies. This is what he tells the children of Israel before he begins to rehearse all of what has happened in the last 40 years. There's an image of an old Jewish man teaching a, a Jewish boy how to perform his, put on his phylacteries or his tefillin when he is going to perform his prayers. Ben, who was playing the guitar up here, when I met him before the service, I saw that he had a tattoo on his arm. And it's writ written in Hebrew script, tefillah, which is the Hebrew word for um, prayer, which is also one of the words for one of the titles of the book of Psalms. Um, so 
notice what we've got here. We have on the top of his head, and we have on his arm, or on his hand. The Hebrew word for arm and hand is the exact same word. So, uh, and the word for leg and foot is the same word. So in Hebrew, you go by, in English, you go by foot. In Hebrew, you, you, go, you go by leg, and it just sounds really weird. Uh, but that's the way it is. Notice what we've got here. You, we've got an awful lot of love here. You are to love God, and God loves you. They are to be on, upon your hearts. There's a reason why that little box, which includes on a piece of parchment this passage, is strapped to your left arm, because tradition has it. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a doctor. I don't know that your heart is more on your left side. So this puts it closer to your heart. At least that's the idea. Symbols on your head, on your hands. You write them on your door frames. Uh, the word for door frame is mezuzah. This is called a mezuzah because that same text is on your door. Why? So that you will keep always in the forefront of your mind and your heart and you are impressing it upon your children that you are to love God. I pointed out the rural world of ancient near, the ancient Near East. And that's another thing that I think that we... How many of you are farmers? How many of you grew up on a farm? Okay, a few more. I think that your parents, and certainly your grandparents, understood the world of the Bible implicitly in ways that we cannot. One of the really big differences between our world and the world of the ancient Near East is that there is no state. Okay, if you're a farmer today, you're not entirely dependent on the rains and your crops. Because if things go bad, there's always a farm bill. Right? There's always a state that can provide some sort of welfare assistance. In the 1800s, there was no state apparatus to do that. So they, I think the, the images of drought and famine and the dependency on um, the natural world, the creation and the cycles of uh, harvest, are much more implicitly understood by people who do not live in the modern world like us. The blessings that we see in Deuteronomy 7, they're all farmer blessings. The fruit of your womb, the fruit of your ground, your grain, your wine, your oil, your flock, your cattle. Okay? It's a farmer's world. Oftentimes I have, you know, in the New, we're a New Testament world, and Christians like to quote this passage, and they think this is something that Jesus is giving that's new. He's asked by a religious scholar, what's the greatest commandment? He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. He's quoting Deuteronomy. The second is, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Leviticus. He's quoting Moses, right? Uh, when Jesus is tempted by the devil after his baptism, three times he responds by quoting the book of Deuteronomy okay, to check the devil. All right? The last point that I wanted to, to give you is how the first gospel, and I'm, trying to, I'm going to try to tie together the themes that I talked about first and now with the New Testament. The, the Gospel of Matthew is divided up into five books. We saw the five books of Moses. There is the first book of, the first Psalm, Psalm 1, is, re, is known and frequently referred to in the rabbinic commentaries as the greatest of all the Psalms because it is a Torah Psalm. And there's a famous saying that Moses gave us the five books of the Torah and David gave us the five books of the Psalms. If you go home and look at your, your Bible, you'll see that Psalm, the book of Psalms is divided up into five sections. Okay? It's Torah. It's, it's prayers, but it's also Torah. So a Jewish, Jewishly aware audience that Matthew is writing to, and he sees that, you see that this gospel, this narrative of the life of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, is divided up into five subsections. This is a literary image that is going to be rather obvious to them. 
Not to us, but it is to them. And each of the sections ends with a similar kind of a phrase. Jesus had finished saying these things. The crowd were astounded at his teaching, and he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. When he had finished instructing the twelve, they move on to the next phase. The next one, when he had finished these parables, he left the place. When he had finished saying these things, he left Galilee. When he had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, you know, that my time has come. At the very end, the last words of Matthew's gospel invoke a lot of the themes that we've been talking about here today. They're in Galilee. He comes to them and he says, all authority has been given to me. What an outlandish claim. On what basis can you say that? Well, Matthew has spent the previous 27 chapters explaining why that is the case, right? Genealogy, virgin birth, temptation, teaching, miracles. And now what is he telling them to do? Go and make disciples of all nations, of all foreigners, all people who are not of the children of Israel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, instructing them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Up until this point, Jesus has been the only teacher in the book of Matthew. You are done being taught. Now go out and teach. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. One of Jesus' names is Emmanuel, which means God with us. We find that in, in the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. You know, Call him Joshua because he will save his people from their sins. The name Joshua means salvation. He is called Emmanuel because God is with us. He is God with us. And we find the same language there. One point that I skipped over when I was back in the Old Testament, and this is to distinguish the worlds, and I want to emphasize this. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, in the prophets, in Deuteronomy, in Exodus, there is an injunction to care for the widow, the stranger, and the orphan. The widow, the orphan, and the stranger. And there is something that is extremely important about that in the ancient Near East, and it has to do with the farm bill that I mentioned. There is no state. There is no state. And the, it is your kin, it is your family that is your source of protection and sustenance and provision. If you have no family, you have, you have nothing. So who is a widow? A widow is a woman who is without family, without a spouse. Who is an orphan? An orphan is without parents, without family. And who is the foreigner? He's the sojourner in the land whose family is somewhere else. Say somebody like Ruth. Right? So what are you to do? You are to care for those who have no one to care for them. There is no state apparatus. There is no welfare state. There is no government. There is, no, there is nobody else to take care of them. And why are you to do that? Because you were once a slave in Egypt. You know what it was like to have been a stranger in a strange land. And that, that is something that I, I think we always need to bear in mind. Because we're, we're told in James, to take, you know, true religion is taking care of widows and, and orphans. Well, why, why does it matter to take care of widows and orphans? Even in the Roman Empire, when that text is written, there, isn't much, there is no other place for uh, widows and orphans to find protection. So you have a new family. All right? Well, with that, I would like to conclude with um, two scriptures, and we'll use these as our prayers, our closing prayer. In Numbers chapter 6, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus shall you bless the Israelites, you shall say to them. And this is a blessing that I would ask that God would have on, on all of us as we go forth this week. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And in the opening verses of the psalm that we read earlier tonight, we read the middle verses. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. 
Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. I think we're done. I went nine minutes over time. My, my apologies. Oh, Jim. It says here, Jim, please announce decaf coffee and snacks in back after service. There you go. <laughs> They didn't have this in the Old Testament either. <laughs> Jim, thank you so much for doing that. Hey, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Would you stand with me as we do that? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that your nature is consistent, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that the God whom we serve does not change. And so there's consistency as we walk with you, Father, as we respond to your calling on our lives. God, thank you for these, um, this, these past few minutes, God, that Jim has, has shared with us and given us a context to do the thing that you call us to, and that is to dive into the Word of God. And Lord, I pray that just even over these next few weeks, as, as we continue opening up Scripture, that, that you would expand our minds, that you would um, speak life to our souls, and that we would have, again, just a greater appreciation for what you have done. And, and through that, we would develop a deeper sense of intimacy as we walk with you and as your Holy Spirit conforms us inwardly, our hearts, into the image of Christ. We're so thankful for that call. Thank you that you've called us, and we, we respond. We say yes, we will go. And thank you that, as we read at the end of Matthew's Gospel, your Son is with us to the very end of the age. And we pray it in his strong, powerful name. Amen. Amen. Guys, thanks again for being here tonight. Next week, we'll, we'll, we'll pick back up the Old Testament. Go get your kids if you've got them. Bring them back and let them finish off the snacks.